Hello and welcome to the Sonic Cinema Podcast. My name is Brian Scuttle. Thank you for joining me at www.sonic-cinema.com as well as the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel. You can also check us out on Apple, Google, and Spotify. And uh, recently I've been doing a lot of guest appearances on podcasts, most recently on the uh, Close Watch podcast where I discussed uh, Alex Price's The Crow. You can check that out. And... Um, yeah, so I've I do have at least uh one or two other uh podcasts that I'm gonna be doing in the future, so I'm I'm looking forward to that. But uh Sonic Cinema Podcast is obviously on Sonic Cinema as well as YouTube and other streaming platforms. Uh you can also check us out at patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. Uh there you will find uh deep dives into uh specific topics like Daniel Craig's run on James Bond or horror movies or uh, the Lonesome Dove series and a bunch of other stuff as patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. And I also do some live streaming on Twitch at twitch.tv backslash Scuttle Lemur. Uh, it's been a bit irregular uh, with uh, my work schedule, but um, hopefully I'll be getting some regularity there. And that is at Twitch. TV backslash scuttle lemur. Normally, when I have a uh, filmmaker on the uh, podcast, it's usually to discuss uh, their. It's usually been to discuss their newest work, or I will be, or after we've had that initial discussion, we'll bring them in to discuss other films, uh, films that they like, film genres that they prefer, filmmakers that they prefer, and that's certainly been the case with today's guest. Um, he, uh, he's he been on the podcast several times over the years, and we've talked about everything from his work to working in the movie theater to Godzilla, Gamera, and Jess Franco. And uh, we're actually going to be discussing his uh, filmmaking work in particular uh, three short films that he uh, just posted online that you'll be able to find on YouTube. And I'd like to welcome back to the podcast, uh, Matthew Saliba. Thank you very much for joining me. Oh, thank you very much for having me, Brian. Uh, I, I must say uh, this kind of feels a little uh, surreal to me because uh, for the longest time, it seems, I've made a, a name for myself talking about and promoting other people's work. Uh, that's somewhere along the line. I forgot that once upon a time I was a filmmaker, too. <laughs> so uh, it's going to be uh, it's going to be fun to, 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 to go down memory lane. Well, and it's it's uh, it's good because of the fact that like this is I mean, we, we I had you on Twitch earlier this year and we talked about Godzilla versus Kong. And but your last time on the podcast, we talked about Jess Franco, and uh, that I I'm actually very I'm actually very glad we had that discussion and I had that introduction to Franco's work uh, before watching these. These were all earlier films from the film that I was introduced to you from Eroticide. And uh, you you recently unearthed some prints of them and posted them on YouTube, and uh, I I'd like for you to uh, sort of take it from there, sort of like the how how that process came about, and just I mean obviously the impulse to put them online was certainly to have people 
get people an opportunity to watch these movies that had kind of been lost for a while. But uh, if you could go through the uh, process of sort of what was like getting, getting these titles back and being able to post them online. Yeah, for sure. Well, um, uh, I don't know if I ever uh, mentioned this on the show. I certainly mentioned it on my uh, social media, Uh, but I'm actually uh, bipolar type 2. And uh, to give you sort of a thumbnail on what that is, uh, I basically go through pretty violent mood swings. Uh, I'm on medication now, and that certainly leveled me out. But uh, a few years ago, uh, when I had lost my job at the uh, Carlton, Uh, I went through a very, very serious depression uh, to the point where uh, I even tried to take my life on two occasions. Uh, But as this pertains to my films, um, there was one night where I went through a really, really bad attack. And in that uh, sort of frantic state, I actually took all the, uh, the negatives to my films and I literally threw them in a garbage can and set that on fire because at that point I was so sure that I wasn't going to be on this earth anymore that I just wanted to completely eliminate and eradicate any trace that I ever existed. And I did the one thing that, you know, I never thought I would have ever done when I had initially made these films. And so, yeah, I mean, they were lost for the longest time. And by that, just to put things in perspective, like I'm not talking about like I, like, I don't even have the DVD copies of my movies. Uh, all those files were destroyed. <clears throat> and then uh, when I moved back to Montreal and uh, got to see my family doctor again, and I got to see a psychiatrist. And um, at that point, I started, um, I guess, in, in a way, sort of rebuilding confidence in myself and sort of... Um, realizing the huge mistake that I made in destroying my masters. Um, So I reached out to uh, a gentleman by the name of uh, S.V. Bell. Uh, He is sort of like Quebec's answer to Roger Corman in the sense that he's a filmmaker himself, although lately he's sort of transitioned to being a painter and it's a beautiful, his paintings are wonderful. And anyway, um, I reached out to S.V. Bell because um, Uh, when, whenever uh, I would finish making a film, uh, I would create a DVD with commentary and extras and pass these along to the cast and crew. And uh, S.V. Bell was the one who basically built those DVDs. And so I remembered that uh, when I reached out to him. And I basically, uh, it's thanks to S.V. Bell that my films are in circulation again because he happened to have a few of the... Uh, the digital masters that he needed to make my DVDs. Uh, he didn't have uh, every single one of my films, but I mean, he sort of had the uh, the Mount Rushmore, as I like to call it. So I figured like he, he saved the good ones. And uh, yeah, I mean, he sent me the files and uh, I do have a YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Matthew Saliba. And uh, yeah, basically I put them up on there and um and yeah, I mean the the it's I mean that was basically the journey to get these films up online, uh, and I can't thank S. V. Bell enough uh, because he really uh, well he basically saved my uh, my legacy. Well, thank you very much for your honesty. I know um, 
talking about such personal matters, especially when it comes to mental health, can be very difficult. And, uh, you know, I, I'm somebody who's dealt with anxiety, stress management issues, and depression over the years. And uh, it's, 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 certainly, it's, it's certainly a, uh, especially when you first start that process, it can be very, very scary to talk about it. I mean, I talk about it very easily now because I'm many years into that process of trying to control though that anxiety. Um, you know, I mean, certainly because of certain life situations that can get flared up and um it's it's tough to it's it's tough to maintain those emotions, but um I'm 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 certainly grateful that uh, we have the opportunity to talk about these movies and that I've had the opportunity to see these movies. And it's, it's funny because I, as I was going through these in preparation for this episode, um, after I got done watching all four of them, I went back and listened to basically the first half of our initial discussion where we were talking about eroticide and... I, one of the things I told you uh, yesterday, I believe, um, was how it was it was interesting because I didn't necessarily remember all the specifics about, you know, and we didn't necessarily, the, the films weren't necessarily named in your, in that initial interview, but at the same time, listening to you talk about them in that context, and then and then putting that together with how I felt about them, watching them, and what the notes that I wrote down, it's like, oh yeah, this makes all the sense in the world. And it's like, oh yeah, I I, I very much felt that in, I very much felt that influence in each of these films. And I I think the thing that is, I always think it's interesting to see filmmakers build a body of work that is not only intentionally personal, but also something that has an overarching idea into it. And, um, you know, and we can, we can certainly discuss uh, each one in, in, in depth. And, uh, but it's, it's like one of, the, one of the interesting things that I found about these, these movies is that it did feel like there's, overarching ideas that are in place each and every time and you know it's it's very much something personal and we certainly talked about the personal aspect of Arad's side in that initial conversation and I, I even watching it again uh, I believe the other it was Monday I watched it again and it was it was just lovely it was it, it continues to be uh, my favorite of your films I, I think it's you know, and there are certainly things I, I really like about the three, the, the other three, but there's something about Rawside that I think is so, so nakedly painful. And then on top of that, you have the craft that you can tell that the craft has grown over the course of these films. Even though it's still pretty good the first time out, you can definitely see the mature maturation process in all four of these films culminating in eroticide. And so uh, I, I appreciate, I, I always appreciate when a filmmaker 
I'm always grateful when a filmmaker gives me a chance to watch their films, be, and I it's something that I take very seriously, the process of watching their films, especially if it's the filmmaker itself, regard, as opposed to like PR people and stuff like that. I think that gives it that gives it much more importance to me to take this process seriously of thinking about these movies. Gosh, uh, wow. Well, I mean, <laughs> thank you. Uh, thank you very much. And uh, yeah, I mean, I imagine we will get into them one by one, but <clears throat> it was funny because, um, you know, I don't really make a habit of, uh, of watching my films. I mean, uh, I, I definitely, when I started out, I, I went through that phase where I would grab random people and put them in a room and, <laughs> and uh, make them watch the I mean, just to give you a, some perspective, uh, that my my very first film, uh, The Manipulator and the Subservient, I remember when my mom had some of her church friends over, uh, I, brought, <laughs> I brought them into my room to watch the movie. And uh, so so I definitely went through that phase. Uh, but now it's 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 more of a, um, I, I mean, I don't really, yeah, I mean, it's not something I'll go out of my way to watch. But I did watch them uh, last night in order to, because I've always felt that the best way to, if you can, uh, to discover a filmmaker is to try to watch their films in order because you could sort of see the journey. Um, and uh, it was, um, I don't know. I mean, it was, it was really interesting watching them. Um, I mean, it's, I don't, I don't know who I spoke to about this, but I feel like, um, you know, like unless someone is completely delusional, I don't think a filmmaker truly enjoys their films the same way like someone like let's say like mm -hmm. you like as, as someone would watch them like because when i watch them i certainly see and i'm sure we'll talk about this uh, all the uh, behind the scenes stories that went on <laughs> and uh so uh, um but on the whole i mean i was uh you know i was pleasantly surprised you know at how uh in in some cases like how 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 quickly they the time flew and uh and in many respects uh how um while there are certain similarities, I mean, how they're all kind of different in their own way. Yeah. And uh, I, I mean, if you almost like took the name of the director off the film, you'd be almost hard pressed to find that they were directed by the same person. Um, just because like when I was going in order and especially when you make the jump from Amy's in the Attic to Eroticide, like uh, clearly something went, clearly something went on <laughs> in those uh, <laughs> in those intervening years. Um, but I mean, I'm happy to talk about eroticide again. Uh, but I mean, um, I mean, this is your show. I'll let you steer the ship, but, uh, yeah. uh, but yeah, go on. Well, and we, well, and we talked plenty about eroticide that first time. I mean, I, I think the main reason I would, I, I think the, the main reason I would want to bring up eroticide is simply within the context of these previous films. I mean, we, you know, li listening back to that initial interview, we talked plenty about Rawside, and uh, I would encourage anybody listening who has not heard that earlier interview, or maybe hasn't heard it in a while, uh, to check it out. It is episode 36, I believe, of the uh, Sonic Cinema podcast, and um, it is it was from 2018. And uh, we, yeah, we spent a good amount of time on Rawside there. I, well, and it's, it's, you know how how long had it been before last night that you'd watched these films? Oh gosh. Um, well, okay, you're talking about like the earlier ones. Yeah, the earlier. Uh, ones. I mean, oh, the early. Uh, <laughs> I want to say. 
probably maybe like 2011, so maybe a good 10 years. Oh, wow. Um, um, I mean, at least for the older ones. Like, I know Eroticide, the last time I had watched that was in 2015 mm -hmm. or somewhere on that part. But uh, for the older films, yeah, certainly, uh, certainly they've been uh, older than that. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I, I certainly understand uh, that the, the fact that filmmakers certainly look at their films, if they do look back on them, they certainly look through, them through different eyes because of the fact that you're also thinking about the process of the making of them more than the viewer is and the audience is. And I think that's, and I, I certainly think that's one of the more interesting uh, things of uh, talking to filmmakers about their work, especially if it's something they did earlier in their uh, career, earlier in their life, and sort of reflecting on how they look at that now. And is there anything, you know, and we'll, we'll talk about specifics in the uh, context of the short films. Is there anything that you look at these films now compared to when you first made them and you know, do you, do you feel differently about them compared to how you initially felt? Well, you know, if there was one thing that I took away from watching all these movies back to back, because again, like these were, well, with the exception of eroticide, but the earlier films, I mean, these were sort of made at a time before YouTube really exploded mm -hmm. and before the, and before the internet became, you know, the, uh, the archive where no, nothing ever dies. <laughs> uh, in retrospect, had I known how big the internet would get, I would have maybe gone back and directed them under a pseudonym. Hmm. Um, just, I mean, not that there's ever been any problems, you know, as far as jobs or opportunities like that go, but I can't help but feel like if, well, actually, uh, actually, no, I do have something I could tell you because uh, <laughs> I was thinking about this. I've never really spoken about this publicly, but uh, one of my passions outside of film and art is politics. And uh, one of my, um, I guess, fantasies has always been to run for office here in Canada. Hmm. However, uh, the running joke about that would be as soon as I would announce my candidacy, <laughs> all someone would have to do is look up one of these films or do or get or just do a Google search on me, and within oh, that yeah. same day, I, I would yeah. within the same day I would <laughs> I would have to withdraw my candidacy. It would it would basically be like a Simpsons moment. I mean, it it yeah. really yeah. <laughs> I I mean that's. You know, I mean, that you, you, we can, you know, and the fact is, it's like we can certainly bring, we can certainly, we can, you know, and that, that, that's actually interesting. Yeah. I, I've, I don't think I, I don't think I've ever heard that you mentioned that before. But yeah, I mean, you, you know, and the thing is, it's like you, I mean, that sort of goes to just, I mean, I feel like, you know, it's not necessarily, obviously it's not a Canadian thing, just a Canadian thing. We see it in the States all the time, although it seems to be matter less and less now. Um, <laughs> but no, I mean, the fact is, it's like there's so much, you know, it, and it's, there's so much, you know, in that you look at in the past, and it's like certainly... You know, you you think about it in your past, and it's like, oh well, that would that would completely tank me. But it's like, 
you know, it it's it also goes to something where it's like, I mean, really, that's you know, why are we, you know, why are we judging people in things they did like ten years ago? And it's like, you know, it's especially well, when it I mean, comes that- to art. Especially when it comes to art. And I mean, you know, it's like well, perhaps like now that you've seen my films and uh, I mean, there are certain things and I know we're going to talk about them, but uh, there are certain things where, uh, wait, what was I saying? Oh, um, no, what was I? Oh, geez. Um, yeah, I mean, like, so you've seen my film, so maybe you could understand why I'm a little more sensitive to the whole uh, idea of cancel culture and canceling people yeah. who have. Yeah. Now, of course, if people have said or done horrible things and they're still acting in that way, obviously, I have no problem with, mm-hmm. you know, taking them down. But I mean, you know, certainly in my case, I mean, I, I guess if you're asking me, would I still make the same films today? Uh, probably not. And that's probably because I'm a very different person. Like uh, yeah. back then, I mean, uh, I was in my 20s. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I honestly thought that I was going to be dead at 27 uh, because I lived hard and played hard, you know, when we would, uh, you know, we would have, we would shoot and then, you know, whenever we would rap, we'd always go out for a big uh, party and naturally I would be the one consuming the most alcohol and substances. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, certainly when I was younger, I had this feeling that, you know, I'm never going to be 39. I'm never going to get married. I'm never going to, yeah. you know, I'm going to be, so you don't think of these things. And I mean, in all fairness, I'm very proud of my work. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I certainly have nothing to really apologize for. I mean, I think, you know, is it provocative? Of course it's provocative, but I mean, I mm-hmm. think whenever you're going to make films that combine sex and drama and horror, I mean, I think by that very nature, it's, it's meant to be provocative, yeah. But I mean, I th- I think you have to take a look at what you know people do in their day to day lives and how they conduct themselves. And I don't necessarily think that what a person has created is indicative of who that person is in mm. real life. Because by that logic, I mean Schwarzenegger should be behind bars for all the for all the people <laughs> he shot in action films. You know what I mean? So it's yeah. like, um, so so yeah. I mean, and then I guess from a technical standpoint, I mean. I mean, I could point out these things, but at the same time, I don't want to disrupt the magic of, you know, someone who watches this film and they then they genuinely enjoy it. I don't want to poke too many holes there. I don't want to point out all the things that they probably shouldn't be looking for. Um, (laughs) But, you know, I will say this, though. And when I when I did my premiere of uh, Eroticide, I actually showed uh, my first film um, before it because. Um, I thought it was very telling because in many respects, those two films kind of tell a similar story, but Mm -hmm. I was at a very different point in my life in 2003 uh, than I was in 2013. In 2003, I mean, you know, like I think the average length of one of my appearances on your podcast is like an hour and 15 minutes. (laughs) I Back in 2003, you'd be hard-pressed to get one minute and 15 seconds of copy out of my mouth. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, whereas in 2013, I was a lot more comfortable with who I was, and I was more than willing to talk about some of these things. Mm-hmm. And I think you sort of see that in the film. Like, I mean, certainly in comparison to Eroticide, uh, you know, my first film is very surreal and experimental and esoteric. Yeah. Whereas, you know, Eroticide just sort of cuts through all the... Uh, 
Actually, that, that's maybe something I would do. When I look at some of my films, I feel like I would maybe cut through the bull spit mm-hmm. and uh, just maybe, you know, tell the story that, that needs to be told. You know, because I mean, eroticide could have been could have been done a very different way. Had I made eroticide back in two thousand three, I feel it would probably be akin more to like a Lynchian nightmare than uh, than the Michael Haneke sort of inspired drama that it became. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I I would I would certainly say I mean I I think you know I mean I I certainly think that uh, you know there is I I think all of these films are. I think all of these films are good. I think all of these films represent a strong vision. Um, even if I prefer some of them over others, I mean, I, I still recognize that there's a def- definite vision to all of them. So, I mean, I definitely appreciate the creative aspect of it. And uh, it's interesting that you uh, look at, you know, you, you, sort of, you, you sort of compared the manipulator and the subservient, uh, the first film, in uh, 2003 to eroticide because in thinking about in that context that actually does kind of make a lot of sense in that one is very much looking at the the sort of relationship um the the dominant and uh sub uh relationship from an almost fantastical standpoint in the first film and then the the and then the later film is very much in the perspective of we're just going to cut through the bullshit get to the emotion and i i think you know and i the thing is it's like i think both of them achieve their emotional impacts in in their own unique in their own unique way and uh let's go and Let's go ahead and start to discuss these, and we'll go ahead and start with 2003's The Manipulator and The Subservient, if you wouldn't mind uh, saying the stage for us. Sure. Well, I, I could tell you the story of uh, <clears throat> how that kind of came to be. Um, so um, that was, although actually before that, I, I just wanted to say one quick thing, because for the longest time, I always used to tell people that I started my film career in 2003. But uh, in reality, uh, the, the very, very, very first uh, film project I ever worked on was in my first year of film class in 2001. And the reason why I mentioned that is because the film was directed by uh, Pavel Pogorelsky, who uh, happens to be the DOP for films on uh, uh, for uh, Hereditary and uh, Midsummer? Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, oh no, no, like he. he it, I, I mean, it sounds like such a cliche, but when you look back, I mean, you could see who's clearly destined for success when you go to school and that. And like he always had a uh, he had a good head on. And anyway, so like we 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 made a film together, and it was funny because uh, <laughs> in many respects it was very much the typical. Uh, first-year film student film. Uh, it was uh, it was shot in black and white. Uh, I played a priest, and there was a Pink Floyd soundtrack. <laughs> so uh, it was pretty much we hit all those uh, those checkpoints. And I, I just bring that up because I'm really proud of Pavel. Uh, like when I saw his name, I was like, oh wow, because his cinema because he was a big Tarkovsky fan too, like you. And so mm-hmm. I really recognized that in his cinematography. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, so um, that was the first-year film class, and the way that worked in film school is that 
you you were basically uh, put in groups of three or four, and you guys had to collaborate together. Uh, in film two, uh, our second class, uh, that changed to the point where um, pretty much everyone got to direct their own uh, short film. So, uh, so in many respects, this was actually a student film. And um, but the thing is, um, at that point, this is when I sort of knew I I wanted to do this for a living. So. Um, I, uh, I, did, I took a bit of a proactive step, and <clears throat> when I had finished the film, uh, I wasn't too much concerned about the year-end screening that they would do. Uh, I was already thinking about film festivals, and uh, I had reached out to the uh, Fantasia Film Festival here in Montreal, and uh, I wasn't sure if they accepted student films, so I just told them, like, I have this project. It's kind of a cross between Eraserhead and Suspiria. And so they kind of liked that. And, um, and then, of course, they ended up accepting the film. Um, so, um, so, no, I just bring that up because, um, you know, it, it was made at Concordia University, but I don't consider it a student film in the sense that I did actively push that uh, for festivals. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, as far as the film goes, um, <laughs> I, mean, I had to actually, like, go back because I have notes and stuff. And because, I mean, it's been such a long time. I mean, it was 2000. So, I mean, I think the script was written in the winter of 2002. Uh, and then I think the way it worked was that once the script was written, we showed that to our professor who signed off on it. And then in January, February of the next year, we shot the actual film. Mm -hmm. um, and so... Um, so basically, uh, I mean, as far as the casting goes, uh, I reached out to uh, a school here in Montreal called the Montreal School of Performing Arts. So uh, all of the actors in the film, uh, with the exception of myself and uh, Mark Evan, who played the, uh, the cowboy, um, yeah, they were all they all came from that school, and uh, it was a really interesting experience because uh, you know they they were fully trained actors, and uh, prior to that point, I had only really dealt with. You know, people like myself who mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> who are more performers than actors, um, and um, it was uh, we shot this on uh, 16 millimeter, so uh, that's sort of why the film kind of has a bit of a softer look because this was way before digital, and um, you know, it was a pretty exhilarating experience. I mean, this was really like my first time directing my own film, and um, you know, to see my vision come to life was really something special. Um, I do remember at the time, um, you know, being somewhat reluctant to discuss some of the specifics in terms of what the film was meant to be, because uh, I was kind of going through my uh, David Lynch phase at the time. <laughs> and uh, so, um, so and, th and that's something that's different because, you know, uh, as a director now, I mean, I would never not tell my actors what the material is supposed to be because, I mean, that's how you <laughs> sort of get the best performances. And that's something else I kind of noticed with the film, too. I mean, like, there's good performances, but I see stuff that, you know, if 2021 Matthew was directing this film, I'd probably redirect a few of the uh, few scenes here and there. Mm -hmm. um, and, I mean, I guess, I mean, I guess the question you're really asking is, like, you know, what's the film all about in that? Um, you know, one of the reasons why I compared this to eroticide was because, much like eroticide, this was about a woman who destroyed me. And it seems like every 10 years that happens. So uh, it's we're, we're coming up on 2023, so I'm kind of due now. Um, but um, and so this was um, this was basically uh, an exp uh, it was based on um, uh, there was a girl that I um, 
cared for at the time, but you know, it was uh, unrequited. And, um, and so I decided to make a movie about that and essentially about an experience where in the beginning, um, you know, you sort of see the situation where uh, there's this young man who's attracted to this woman, but she's in a relationship with this other guy. Uh, and then where things get a little different is um, where the, the concept of the psychogenic fugue comes into play. Um, so I'm, I'm really, I, I love films like Lost Highway and Carnival of Souls and Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, Jacob's mm-hmm. Ladder, you know, films that play with that rubber reality where you're not sure what's real and what's fantasy. So yeah. in this case, basically the whole concept is that uh, the young man is obviously traumatized by the situation, so he retreats into his own mind, where in his world, uh, he's in control of things. He literally grows the woman that he loves in his bathtub, and uh, she's very sort of subservient to him. However, uh, much like any psychogenic fugue, eventually reality does creep in uh, bit by bit. So uh, in this case, you know, when the uh, the mailman comes over with that big box and uh, the old man opens it and sees the, uh, the, the collar and leash, you know, that's supposed to symbolize the fact that, you know, even in dreams, he can't really be with the woman he loves, which is sort of how I felt uh, at the mm-hmm. time. So I don't know if any of that works for you. <laughs> I mean, it's been a really long time, but uh, I, I mean, I think that's that was by and large what I remember of it. No, it's funny because of the fact that Lost Highway was exact. When I wrote down my notes for uh, this film, Lost Highway was exactly the Lynch film that came to mind when it comes to. It. But I mean, I can you can also see influences. You can also see like Mulholland Drive in this. Maybe even a, a little bit of Inland Empire, even though obviously Inland Empire was a few years later. And then yes, Razorhead, of course. Um, well, you know that's the thing because uh, you were asking earlier, like. Um, what I was thinking of when I was watching these films. And uh, one of the things I noticed is you can clearly see when I've discovered a new director, (laughs) 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 which is, I think that's probably the most glaring thing to me is like, you can clearly see. And it's funny you mentioned Mulholland Drive because I think that came out in 2001. So I think that was my first David Lynch film. Mm -hmm. And uh, so obviously, I mean, I became really enamored with him and, uh, and yeah, I mean like, you know, I mean the film did well, like on festivals and such, like going back to Fantasia, like uh, they had a special short film competition where it was nominated for best director, editing, cinematography and screenplay. Um, And then like I had submitted to some other festivals, there was a festival in Minnesota called the Bearded Child Film Festival. And uh, uh, that film actually won Best of Fest and uh, I got a hundred dollar check in the mail. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, uh, so that, so no, it, 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 uh, it it did pretty well. You know, I think uh, in spite of, uh, in spite of the fact that it might be a little hard to, to get into or to read on first glance, it does seem that, you know, People kind of—it certainly resonated with people. Oh my God! I'm so sorry. I forgot the big thing about this movie that I, w- I was supposed to talk about. Yes. So, um, <laughs> oh God! Whoa, Jesus! All right, <laughs> maybe we can edit that out. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so um, yes. Yeah, so, um, so for me, um, you know, I'm not. I, I know this is going to sound like tooting my own horn, but I've always sort of seen myself as a little ahead of my time in the sense that like when I, when YouTube 
started to come into its own. Like I always, I always sort of saw that as a, a cloud. Like I never actively promoted that channel. So like in the beginning, uh, when I made the manipulator and the subservient, I took the opening scene and just put it on my YouTube channel, like as a little teaser. Yeah. And that clip, um, be, uh, was essentially my first viral clip because that took on a life of its own. Uh, I mean, you wouldn't know it now because I had to basically delete hundreds of comments, but I would get all kinds of comments, like people not really realizing that this is a movie, that they think that this is just something I filmed in my living room. <laughs> and so and so it got to the point where people were writing pretty awful stuff, yeah. about, particularly about the actress, Lila Marcelino. And so mm. it got to the point where it's like, I, at one point I just shut off comments altogether just because it was getting too gratuitous, but I've recently put them back on and I just filter them. But, um, but yeah, I mean, that was a clip that kind of uh, took on a life of its own to the point where actually a few months ago before uh, I ever got in touch with SV Bell about my master's, uh, someone had actually posted the, that opening clip and they put a bounty of $100 on my film for, for, for anyone who could basically find, like you can look this up on Google, like someone put on a Reddit, someone put like a $100 bounty on my film. Uh, and I don't know, do I get to claim that since I found it? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I, would, I would certainly hope so, but uh, <laughs> no, that, no, I, I will say it's like, I, I think this is, there's a strong sense of visual storytelling i think you i i think your 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 visual sense as a storyteller is very uh very uh confident from minute one and i mean with this type of story it would almost have to be because of the fact that you're 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 pulling from influences like lynch and you know he you know if if his vision doesn't work the entire thing collapses and I think that is, I, I think especially if you're, especially if you're going to do your version of an auteur's distinctive as Lynch, I mean, you definitely need to, you, you definitely need to be confident in that. And I, and I think that combined with the story, I mean, this is, I, I, there's such a, there's such a quiet sadness to, to this movie. It's not quite as, it's not quite as viscerally sad as a raw side becomes, but it's there's just a quiet sadness because, like you said, this is essentially about somebody who's longing for a relationship that they're just not capable, they're not into, and you know it, and it's one or they're not going to have, and it's like you said, the more that they go into that fugue state, and the more they go into that imaginary relationship the more the reality creeps into it and yeah that is that is one of the uh is one of the uh strongest aspects of it the the control between going between fantasy and reality and i i think that is it's it's extremely effective in the end in there well i, I mean again thank you very much i'm <laughs> i'm not used to getting uh nice comments um but no i mean uh uh, yeah, again, I mean, Lynch was very, I mean, one thing I could, I could definitely say, though, like watching this is that um, I, I do feel like, <clears throat> I do feel like uh, it might be a little too enamored with Lynch. 
to the point where, because uh, I know like the follow-up film I made to this was a film called uh, Pandora's Paradox, which was about a, an old woman who gives birth to a giant toe. And when the toe is fed milk, it hatches into a little boy. And uh, basically the boy has to live with his mother and father in this dysfunctional relationship. And essentially at the end, he basically returns home to his mother's womb. And uh, I mean, definitely... I always I, I consider that and this film to be my little Lynchian duo because that's clearly when I mean I was starting to build my own voice, but I still feel like at this stage in my career I was a little I was still relying very much on my influences as opposed to, you know, like maybe like as opposed to let's say eroticide where the influences aren't as apparent as let's say, you know, my first film. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, you know it's 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 interesting that it's like this is the the personal aspect of this is sort of from an unrequited love. And I mean, I I've certainly had instances where I've had those type of uh, you know inner relationships with people that never really you know came to fruition. And you know it's 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 really you know it I I know it can be really difficult to. Uh, have that realization, and um, I, I was, you know, I was just kind of curious. And I, one of the, one of the things that, one of the things that I, I think is very, you know, and and hearing you talk about it in that respect makes me, makes me not quite as sure about my own personal thoughts in terms of the connective tissue of all four of these because of the fact that, I mean, you know, you're, the way you, the way you uh, portray your character and then Leela's character is very much a dominant sub submissive relationship in the vein of, like, a BDSM-type relationship. And some... And that's where sort of the comparison to a raw side really makes a lot of sense for me because you sort of see that same type of relationship play out, but you've seen it after it already curdled into something completely toxic. And the and Yan in that movie realized and tried to get away from it. Yeah, I mean, um, uh, it, it it's interesting because, uh, well... One thing when I was watching this movie, I, I actually found myself longing for the days when this was my worst problem. <laughs> uh, but uh, it, uh, I do have a little a little post note to the film uh, because um, a couple years later, I received an email from uh, the woman who the film was based on <laughs> uh, and because uh, she had heard about the, my film and uh, we had gotten uh, so we got in touch with each other and uh, we actually sat down and watched it side by side and uh, I'll never forget I think her uh, her first response when the film was done was uh, oh I never led you on as if you know from the opening scene where I'm on the leash mm -hmm. so I think she took that she took that a little literally but yeah. uh, <laughs> but anyway that's just a little little post note um, yeah I mean like you know. Um, I mean, we'll, uh, I'll definitely talk about it more with the, the next film that we're going to bring up because, uh, um, but, but yeah, I mean, like I've, uh, I've made no, uh, I've made no point to hide the fact that, you know, uh, especially at that point, I was very much involved in the, uh, the fetish community 
And um, so, you know, for me, like, when I think of, you know, or at the time, at least when I thought of sex, like, you know, fetish was sex. And so in many respects, that's why uh, fetish imagery has been so prominent in a lot of my films, because that's what I know. Uh, I mean, I suppose, because I mean, like sometimes like some people in the fetish community would criticize these films for their for certain negative portrayals. Um, of course, the, the fetish community is also incredibly toxic. So there's some irony in them uh, mm -hmm. complaining about negative portrayals. Um, but uh, but no, and I tell them, um, you know, by choosing fetish imagery, I'm not necessarily making a statement on that. Although I was a little bit with eroticide. I mean, it's mm -hmm. just because that's what I know. I mean, if I were gay, I mean, my films would be filled with homosexual imagery. And then, of course, people would then say, well, what are you saying about gay people? It's like, well, no, because I'm gay, so I'm writing about that material. You know, you write what you know. Yeah. So, I mean, um, so I've never seen my films as intentionally trying to portray BDSM in a negative light. Um, but, I mean, perhaps because well, I, I think maybe people are more responding to perhaps the, uh, the sadness of the story and not so much the imagery, the S and M imagery. Yeah. And I, I think that's in, I, I think that's kind of where in, in terms of using, using that imagery as sort of symbolism as to how the, how, how your character feels compared to, you know, the, the woman he's, fantasizing about having this life with um it's it's interesting to it it makes sense to sort of have that have that um symbol symbolic uh idea of that representational idea of that relationship or that sort of manifesting into sort of a, that type of relationship that you know it i think i'm I'm trying to explain this better, but you know, it's it's uh by I think I think having having that sort of having that imagery sort of representative of that type of relationship, I think does feel very natural in this film. And I I I think it's I, I think in, in the context of this particular film, I think it's an effective way of getting to the emotions that um the main character is feeling. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, <clears throat> you know, I, I, I'm back back then. I used the term to sort of define my style of film, and I, I used to call it sadoerotic, which was basically the erotic representation of sadomasochistic imagery as opposed to the pornographic. Mm -hmm. um, and it's funny because, like, I've always found it odd that, you know, uh, people in the fetish community would sometimes. Uh, um, turn on my work, particularly when uh, my films would play at festivals where they would sometimes show like flat out pornographic fetish material. And like, so, so no, I mean, like by choosing this stuff, I mean, like, I, again, I'm just writing what I know. Oh, yeah. uh, I, I'm yeah. certainly, I'm certainly not uh, intentionally at least trying to, to make anyone look bad. Mm -hmm. Um, I do have a, a little funny story about the title of the film. Um, so I don't know if uh, when you Google the title, if uh, you, uh, I, I always feel sorry for anyone who Googles this film because, or, or Googles this specific title because uh, when you Google it, uh, a certain video game pops up called Final Fantasy Tactics. Oh, wow. 
<laughs> and uh, <laughs> because like the, the game is sort of divided into chapters and one of the chapters is called the manipulator and the subservience. So that's sort of where that comes from. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so, uh, so yeah, it's just funny because, you know, if you Google that, uh, or for that matter, if final fantasy fans are Googling the manipulator and the subservient, yeah. I'm very curious to see <laughs> uh, the, re- the response. <laughs> So we're going to we're going to actually we'll go ahead and uh, move on to the next film, and this is this is obviously really where I I'm I'm grateful that we had that discussion about Jess Franco and that I'm now more familiar with Jess Franco and in particular his most famous film, uh, Vampires Lesbos, because this next film is a little remake. Uh, in a way of, although I, I wouldn't say it's a remake, it's more of, it it's it starts out sort of as a remake and then basically kind of goes on its own, uh, on its own axis. And I think that is, that's one of the things that's most impressive of this. I think it's, I, I think overall it's an extremely uh, strong vision. And it's actually, I, I think to a certain extent, it's a very inspired update on uh, a cult classic like this, film um what what first of all uh, i want to talk about the i want i would like to ask you about the uh style because it's not just franco that you're drawing from but i i feel like there's another very famous film from i yeah it's from the 60s from the 60s that you're drawing from as well in the way that you made this movie Yes, I was waiting for you to ask about that because yes, that's always that's the first thing everyone. Well, I mean, no, actually, the first thing is the first thing I would always hear from people would be like, uh, "F you for remaking a classic." The second thing I would hear would be, "What's with the stills?" Uh, so uh, yes, I, I mean, the, so the film yeah you're referring to Chris Marker's uh, La Jetée, which inspired uh, Twelve Monkeys. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so uh, for this, we'll have to go back a couple years, and uh, forgive me for going off on these tangents. It's just, it's been a very long time, and I'm trying to uh, recollect the uh, the steps that led to this. But so um, back in 2006, uh, I had written a, a script called uh, Raped Three Ways, and uh, it was basically a subversive rape and revenge film where instead of... Uh, um, you know, let's say two or three guys raping a woman. It was two women raping a guy. And uh, as you can probably imagine, in 2006, it was very difficult to shop this around to people. Um, and so at some point, I sort of gave up on the idea of ever turning that into a movie uh, until I met a, a photographer in 2007 by the name of uh, Mario Karanji. Uh, I was put in touch with them because uh, I had an idea to do a photo shoot. And um, uh, when I went to his uh, website, uh, he he said he had written something that I thought was really, really interesting because I had never heard a photographer talk about photography this way. Uh, he said he was looking to collaborate with people who want to tell stories through pictures. Now, I mean, you know, there's obviously themed photo shoots people do, but I mean, usually it's just like a handful of pictures, but I, I had never heard him describe uh, describe it in that way uh, before. So I basically told him about my rape three ways idea and, uh, you know, he loved it. Uh, we cast it and um, 
basically, again, it was initially conceived as a photo shoot. So like, you know, we had stills that were in panoramic, but then also in portrait mode. And uh, so basically once the photo shoot was done, I took the pictures and I made like a little, um, like a little slideshow really to music. And I called it, uh, she was asking for it. And uh, uh, it basically, it took on a life of its own because Fantasia heard about this and they showed the film. Uh, they showed it, I think, before a film called Silent Screams, which was another uh, S&M uh, themed, themed film. So I guess they got good programming there. Um, and so, um, and then um, after that, like basically what happens with film festivals, especially with Fantasia, is like if you get in at Fantasia, everyone else starts basically writing you to get a copy of the film and see if it's right for their festival. Mm -hmm. And um, so she was asking for it, ended up playing at a bunch of film festivals and even won one, I think I, I think it won um, the People's Choice Award at the Rec Beach Film Festival in Ontario. Um, and, um, and so based, based on the success of that, we decided to make another one, but with the idea that this was going to be a film. So no more portraits, like everything was going to be shot in panoramic. And, um, you know, and uh, so we, we cast the, the film. Uh, the film was cast uh, with a lot of uh, really uh, uh, interesting people. Uh, there was uh, Isabel Steven, who played my wife, uh, Linda. Uh, I cannot say enough wonderful things about her. And I'm not sure when this is going to drop, but uh, by then people will probably have found out that she's going to produce my new film. So uh, we're going to be collaborating again. So I cast her. Uh, Kitty Daly was another model. And uh, there was Caden Rose and uh, Denis Coupal, who played the priest. Um, and then, um, yeah, I mean, as far as the stills go, uh, there were a lot of advantages to making a film like this because uh, I live in Montreal and Montreal is in the province of Quebec and uh, Quebec is, a, is primarily uh, French speaking. And uh, one of my biggest pet peeves about horror films in Quebec is that many people will make films uh, with the idea of trying to sell them to the States. But the problem is that everyone who speaks in these films, you know, instead of sounding like they're from Chicago, they sound like they're from Chicoutimi. And so, uh, and so that, I, I hated that. Uh, but then in Eroticide, I found a way to work around that. But um, so in the case of like Vampiros Lesbos, because this was all still photography, I could work with anyone I want to work with, whether yeah. or not they have experience, whether or not they... Um, you know, I mean, because, you know, it's all very crafted and, you know, it's all posing and everything. And um, it was a really interesting way to make a film because, like, sometimes in the case of where there was action, like, for example, like the scene in the bedroom when uh, uh, Isabel's riding me <laughs> into the bedroom, um, you know, we, like, in real life, like, we called, you know, like, you know, lights, camera, and then action. And, like, you know, we would, like, uh, act out the movements and like Mario would be there firing with the photography and so that's why like you can kind of see like in some cases like where it almost feels like it's fluid motion mm -hmm. uh, yeah. now I mean we I would end up making another movie with Mario after this called Dark Lotus which is unfortunately lost but that was sort of the last part of this sort of stills trilogy and that took the move 
that took our style in a whole new direction because this was in black and white mm. and uh, there was even more care to try to recreate the illusion of motion. But, uh, but I'm glad you did see Vampiros Lesbos because it's really like, you know, it's, uh, it's not the best, but it's not the worst either. It's right in the middle in the sense of how the style was developing. Yeah, I, I definitely, uh, yeah, I mean, you, you definitely, you get the feel of a, uh, of a narrative music video in this film. And I, I, you do definitely notice the fluidity, fluidity of, mo of motion, even as it, you recognize that it's still photography. And I think the fact that it is still photography is what makes this so effective in not just, in being as much more of an homage to Franco than trying to simply imitate him, trying to do something your on your own that that goes in a very different direction than what uh, Franco did, but also paying paying respect to what you were getting out of the filmmaker as as an inspiration for this particular film. And that kind of goes back to what we were talking earlier <clears throat> with uh, my first film, how like that might have felt too Lynchian for its own good. Mm -hmm. Whereas in this case, like uh, you could clearly see that, you know, while I am drawing from Franco, it's not to the same extent that let's say I was drawing from Lynch with my first film. Like this is very much like my own thing. Um, now, I mean, I know we spoke about this um, on the Jess Franco podcast, but I'll just recap real quick because uh, this will go into uh, why I decided to uh, to pay homage. And I'm glad you said it's not a remake because I was always very clear. I was always very careful not to say remake. Uh, I always use words like homage and such. This was actually before people use words like reboot and stuff. Yeah. But uh, so so no, I was but uh, because yeah, I mean. Uh, I always sort of looked at this as sort of a Cliff's Notes version of Vampiros Lesbos for, you know, if you didn't quite get the, the point of the, the feature, hopefully the short kind of makes it abundantly clear. Um, so, I mean, basically, like, like I said on the Just Franco podcast, and I want to make this clear that this is just my interpretation because Just Franco doesn't strike me as being a misogynist. I mean, I know he he and his wife, Lena Romay, were together for such a long time. And, but anyway, so, I mean, the, but, but again, like when you create a work of art, you know, there's your intention and there's what people are going to read into it. And mm. especially if your film takes off, I mean, it, it goes on a life of its own and sometimes you can't control how people are going to interpret your stuff. But anyway, um, I always sort of saw uh, Vampiros Lesbos and that whole lesbian vampire subgenre as kind of homophobic. Uh, in the sense that these stories are almost always about a woman in a very dry, dull, sterile, vanilla relationship with her husband. Uh, they go out to a club. Uh, she gets uh, seduced by a, a female vampire. Um, she goes to live with the female vampire, and then at some point the husband has to go and rescue her to to save her, you know, heaven forbid, from her lesbian relationship and bring her back to the world of heteronormalcy. Hmm. Um, and so what I wanted to do, so I, I, I really kind of seized on that because, and again, uh, maybe I spoke about this before, but, um, you know, around it was around this time that I sort of um, came out of the kink closet and, you know, sort of, you know, 
I mean, because people would see this in my films that, you know, they would always ask me, well, how come you're always doing this kind of stuff? You don't actually like this, do you? And I always used to pretend that I didn't. I would be like, well, no, this is just for my movie. Uh, but then at some point I sort of did come out. And uh, unfortunately, um, while there were people who did support me and still support me to this day, uh, I lost a lot of family and friends. And that really hurt me a lot. And I think that in many respects caused me to get very militant about my views, which is why I'm somewhat sympathetic to people in the LGBTQ community who come out and they get a little militant about their views because, you know, when you're putting up with so much uh, bullshit from people, I mean, you can't help but uh, lash out. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, maybe looking back on it, I maybe could have endeared myself a little better because I shouldn't necessarily assume that everyone is going to, you know, cast judgment on me. But anyway, I was young and, you know, but at any rate, it, it did result in this movie. So I guess there's some good that came out of that. Um, and so anyway, so what I wanted to do was basically transfer my story to that of Linda's. So in this case, you know, Linda, we see at the beginning that she's, you know, in this relationship with uh, Omar and clearly it's, not really going very well. One night they go out to this club and they're, she's enticed by the Countess Nadine. And, uh, you know, through her experience with Nadine, like basically she discovers that she's really into S&M. Uh, and, uh, and so, which is why she and uh, uh, Countess Nadine take their uh, frustrations out on uh, Omar's character. Uh, but then, you know, Omar escapes and like in any true lesbian vampire film he seeks uh, the cloth and um, you know he goes back to try and uh, quote unquote save her uh, much like how some people tried to uh, save me uh, with uh, when I uh, sort of came out like that so that was sort of my um, that was the reason why I wanted to sort of pay homage to Vampiros Lesbos just because that was something that really uh, struck with me stuck with me I should say and, um, you know, I'll admit, you know, uh, I always used to champion genre film as the ideal medium for someone who wants to make a film about political and social stuff but doesn't want to be obvious about it. Um, but the problem is, you know, my films play in all kinds of countries, and unfortunately they never uh, have the budget to fly me in. So I can't attend all these screenings and have this conversation where I explain what Vampiros Lesbos is supposed to be. So unfortunately, you know, I mean, I mean, some people, I mean, people may have gotten that like after I told them, but certainly on first or second or maybe even third viewings, I don't think that's anything. I don't know, I'm not sure that's something that really, and so that's, you know, you could sort of see like how, you know, like, around this point, I, I, I learned a pretty valuable lesson. And I think in many respects that influenced me to sort of change my style up as the years would go on. Yeah. And, uh, it's, it's, it's when, when you did, when, when you, now when you did post-production on this, did you, um, were some of the photographic effects were some of the visual effects, or some of in in by which I mean some of the ways that the images look on screen is that something that you guys worked out in the initial shooting of the photos, or was it something that when you put these together in the sequence of 
of making the film? Was this something that you worked out in post in terms of getting some of the different visual uh, visual effects going? In. Oh, well, I mean, honestly, with the exception of the fact that this was done with stills, uh, this was very much treated like a regular film. Like, I, I there was a script, uh, there was a shot list, there was a storyboard. I mean, obviously, with Mario being the director of photography, he had some leniency in terms of how he wanted to frame shots. But, uh, no, everything was worked out uh, ahead of time. Like, uh, we shot at his studio, uh, we built sets and everything. Um, I mean, there were a couple of visual effects done in post. I think the scene where, um, when the van, when the, the girls are biting me on either side of my neck and like the screen blacks out and you just see my eyes. I mean, that was something we did in post. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I mean like, uh, you know, again, Mario and I were very, like, he was one of my favorite people to collaborate with. We were very much in sync and um, I do have a fun story about him. I don't know if he wants me to tell this, but um, uh, when I first met him, it was at a coffee shop. And based on his style of photography, I mean, I was expecting like a young person. But uh, imagine my surprise when this sort of grandfatherly type, uh, this really boisterous, uh, really nice guy showed up. And uh, so, you know, never judge a book by its cover, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, and obviously, I mean, all of these are now available on your YouTube channel, and uh, I highly, I highly recommend, especially if you were a fan for Raw's side, and that's all that you've known of Matthew's work, uh, based on our conversations over the years. And uh, I, I would, I would definitely recommend checking these films out. I, I think they're they they make an interesting body of work, and they certainly make an interesting. Uh, in, an interesting evolution of uh, Matthew as a filmmaker. Um, and I, I would certainly, you know, and it's, it's interesting because of the fact that your, your third film that has uh, surfaced recently is, uh, is, is one where I'll, I'll admit I'm, I, I don't know that it's quite as effective as your other films and these three, but it certainly it certainly maintains a strong vision, and uh, I'm I'm definitely looking forward to uh, getting into uh, talking about it. It is a movie you made, a short film that you made in 2010 called Amy's in the Attic. Uh, oh let's, yes. Let's let's go ahead and first of all let's 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 discuss uh, the premise and any inspirations that may have come in to uh, making this film. Yeah, um, so this was one of the reasons why I reached out to you uh, before you watched the films, because I made the mistake once uh, when we had the premiere of this uh, without telling people before they watched the film that this was meant to be an homage to Italian exploitation films, that it's, you know, it's supposed to look cheap. Uh, You know, it was the... The cinematography is supposed to have that I Love Lucy style blocking. Yeah. Um, you know, no, that's all intentional. Because I think uh, when I first showed the film, like, uh, you know, I think some people were trying to be very polite. But, <laughs> but, uh, but once I explained. So, um, yeah. So in this case, well, I mean, as I've explained many times, like, I love uh, Italian exploitation movies. Uh, or horror films in general. Um, <clears throat> and so this was uh, uh, an homage to a specific subgenre of Italian uh, um, exploitation films, and that's called the Ruffy. 
Uh, and this is basically um, a setup where, you know, there's usually a, 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 there's, it can either be like a home invasion, like a film like House on the Edge of the Park, where two people invade the home. Like there's a party going on and two people invade and they sort of take over and make people do degrading things. Uh, or in the, the direction that, uh, that I went in, uh, the, the idea is that, you know, there's a bunch of socialites having a get together. Things are kind of not going according to plan. It's things are a little dull. And so the, uh, the ringleader decides to spice things up by uh, playing a game where everyone puts their name in his hat and whoever's name is picked has to be the slave. And uh, of course the film wouldn't be called Amy's in the attic if Amy wasn't the person who was picked. So, uh, and you know, she, uh, she goes on quite a, quite a bit, quite a journey. Um, but yeah, I mean, this was very much, uh, I mean, like right from the opening, um, um, title card, uh, that's sort of the idea that this, you know, the original 35 millimeter uh, materials are lost and that uh, the only way to watch this uh, is through um, a mix of these, uh, <clears throat> you know, these distressed prints, mm -hmm. uh, some of which have uh, Italian, some of which are in Italian with English subtitles. Uh, I mean, that's very much a tribute to, if you've ever purchased a DVD or a Blu-ray from Anchor Bay or Blue Underground, uh, you'll inevitably, particularly a, a DVD of a European exploitation film, uh, you'll inevitably see these uh, warnings because, you know, when these films were originally released in the States, they were cut. But yeah. now that they're uncut, they'll take scenes from, like, the Italian negative and splice them in to, to give you that uncut experience. So, um, so this was actually a lot of fun to conceive because this was sort of my... The first time I was sort of doing an active homage to films and styles that I like. So, I mean, you know, uh, I, you know, I grabbed the uh, Titanus logo that usually would appear before a lot of Italian horror films. We put that in here. Uh, I mean, we did the whole thing. I mean, the film was shot digitally, but we obviously put on the 35 millimeter filter to make it yeah. look like it was all filmic. Yeah. And, um, but I mean, Brian, uh, I mean, let's be honest. I think uh, there's one question that you want to really ask me about this film, and uh, let me just jump right into it. Um, there, there is something pretty controversial, and and I'll be happy to talk about it. Um, the choice of font that I used for the English subtitles was Times New Roman. Now, I'll admit that that uh, may have struck a chord with some folks. Um, usually the typical font you would go for this would be Calabiri Soft, maybe Helvetica, but Times New Roman, even I'll admit, you know, you were asking me earlier what I regret for my film. It's got to be the, the, the font. It's a little too big. I mean, all right, so yeah. Oh, How oh, you mean the black? dare you use Time, Time? How dare you use that font? I can't believe you. Oh, Brian, you're, an you're artist talking for crying out loud. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Brian, you're, you're you're talking about the blackface. <laughs> I don't. There's no need to it, beat around the bush about that. What is going to come up? <laughs> I, you don't need to beat around the bush about that. I'm more than happy to talk about that. You know, truth be told. I must be honest because up until now you've kind of had me at a disadvantage because I wasn't really sure if you liked my films or not specifically for these reasons. And so like, I wasn't sure if we were going to do the talk after all. Cause uh, you know, I mean, obviously you're entitled to feel whatever you yeah. want to feel, but you know, I wasn't necessarily looking for a contentious debate, but, um, but no, 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 I'm more than happy to talk about all that. So, um, so there are two. 
Well, go ahead, go ahead. I think so, we beat so this here, joke. Here, here's what I will say. Obviously, you know, I I personally didn't even think about the font, but now that you mention it, yes, it's completely offensive, and how dare you use it? Uh, no, I mean, so as you know, I I will say it's like, and first of all, I love the fact that it looks like it's it's derived from different prints and stuff like that. I love the fact that it looks like it was pieced together in from like different versions of it. And I, I love that idea. And I, I think that's one of the reasons that this film maintains such a strong vision is because of the fact that it, it does, it's very much in that exploitation vein. And I, I, I really appreciate that. And I really got good. Uh, I, I really got a good kick out of it. Um, here, here's what I will say about the blackface. Okay. I will simply say this, this is, this is, First of all, it's a big holy shit moment to notice. When when it comes on screen, it's like, oh my god. Uh, but you know, the fact of the matter is, it's like when you when you put into perspective that this is basically about five people who are together, and one of their friends is intended to be a slave, and they can do whatever they want with them, and. You know what? These people clearly have no moral compass whatsoever. And because of that, they don't have any reservations about putting somebody in blackface. And yes, of course, it is offensive. Yes, of course, it is offensive. But at the same time, I'm. It's a shock moment. And it was a moment where I'm like, oh, holy shit. Um, but at the same time, you know, I think. Did I think it necessarily added anything to the movie? No, but at the same time, I understand that it's simply for shock value. It's it's simply for, and these people have no moral compass whatsoever in this particular case. So it's like, you know what? We're going to do whatever we want. We want to put her in blackface. We're going to put her in blackface. We're going to humiliate her like that. And that's kind of how, and that that's basically what I wanted to say as far as the blackface. <laughs> no, 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 and, that, and that's fine because I mean, obviously, that's that's something. And uh, there's a lot. Uh, I mean, we can. Uh, there's a lot I like to talk about this film because uh, there was a lot of controversy controversy that would surround it later on. Um, but no, uh, in regards to the blackface, there's two answers that I can give you to that question. There's the short answer, which, for all intents and purposes, is the real answer. And then there's sort of the long-winded answer for people who don't buy the short answer. <laughs> so uh, the short answer to this is. Uh, in addition to being inspired by Italian exploitation films, there is one film, well, there's a scene in a film that very much inspired um, this this whole picture, including the blackface. And uh, there's a horror film called Last House on Dead End Street. Hmm. Um, now, you might, you might be, uh, conf- uh, you'd be forgiven if you confuse that for Last House on the Left. Yeah. Because uh, this was obviously a film that capitalized on that. Um, it's a film that made by Roger Watkins in 1973. Uh, it's actually on 2B, if anyone wants to check this out so you could sort of get the reference. Um, uh, the film's about an ex-con who um, uh, basically wants to get back at the people who did him wrong, and so he decides to do that by filming snuff films. Uh, but anyway, uh, so that's the premise of the film. But at some point in the movie, there's this party scene where there's a bunch of, you know, not unlike Amy's in the Attic, there's a bunch of, but the thing is, like, these people are probably, like, the most, like, 
these are so not the people you would see at a party like this. These are like, you know, like sort of like college types, you know, like liberal arts majors and such. Mm-hmm. So they're all at this party. And uh, there's a woman who um, is getting ready upstairs. Like she puts her face in, uh, she, she puts black face on her face. And then she kind of comes downstairs and like, whatever you might think of what we did in this film, uh, this pales in comparison <laughs> to the original. Uh, because like, there's a whole thing where there's like a seven-year-old kid who's carrying a bull rope on a, on a pillow that you would normally put like a wedding ring on. Uh, and then he hands this to a hunchback who basically whips the woman in blackface for about 10 minutes while everyone laughs mm. and it was a it was a scene that stuck with me and again if you get a chance i mean i, I i'm not going to say it's a good movie but i mean it's uh it's uh it's it's, it's a fascinating story i mean even that because that originally that was a three-hour film called the cuckoo clocks of death or cuckoo clocks of hell mm. and then it got uh edited down to 70 minutes but uh, so basically the short answer again being that this was basically an homage to that film. Um, the long, the long winded answer. Um, okay. So let me, so it's been a while since I've given this speech. So let me just, the long winded answer to this. And again, there's some truth in this as well. <clears throat> you know, I've always felt that there were two ways you could make a movie. Uh, you can either take the art approach or the ideology approach. And uh, right now, I mean, in film, one of my problems with a lot of modern day films is that ideology has trumped art, that uh, people are making films about ideas and they're not telling stories anymore. And, um, you know, and, you know, there's, I mean, I suppose there's pros and cons to both sides. I mean, I feel people who are driven by ideology, you know, will contort everything in their story to prove their ideology right. Whereas people who, let's say, are just focusing on a story, uh, I've always found that approach much more interesting because mm-hmm. as I'm writing a story, ideas kind of come to me and I'm like, oh, well, this is what this is really about. And this is kind of something I sort of reflected on after the fact. Uh, like when I was uh, writing Amy's in the Attic, I did a lot of research on Italian horror films. And I'm not sure if you were aware of this, but um, in a lot of these films, you you would see uh, live on-camera animal killings, uh, particularly like in Cannibal Holocaust. That's the most notorious of these films, like where you see like uh, like someone has like this big large tortoise and they cut the head off and like it's all done on camera. It's really disgusting. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, like when I was watching a lot of these films, I kind of realized that as much as I may admire them on a technical and aesthetic level they're kind of deplorable, morally speaking. They're, mm-hmm. they're made by some of the most morally irresponsible <laughs> filmmakers ever. Yeah. And, um, you know, at the time, I mean, even if I wasn't a vegan, I, I mean, but at the time I was a vegan, so obviously I wasn't going to kill animals on screen as part of my tribute to European exploitation films. But, I mean, I do feel that if you are going to pay homage, if you are going to do like a grindhouse film, you can't do a grindhouse film with the perspective of a 21st century filmmaker. Like you have to put yourself in the shoes. And so, you know, I mean, that's the the long, (laughs) the long winded answer as to why that's there. I mean, you know, truth be told, if there's anything I really regret from that film, um, because one of the things I kind of pride myself on all my films is how they kind of have a timeless quality. Like, unless you read the end credits, you can't really tell they're from their respective eras. Mm-hmm. So the only, the one thing that kind of 
really gives uh, Amy's in the attic away is the is the is the line that Barbara says after uh, <laughs> Amy comes in with the black face and she says, "Oh, finally, change we can believe in." Oh wow! So for me, that's like you know, uh, you know that kind of but yeah. not not because, although even then I will say I will say that in some of the films that have inspired this, like House on the Edge of the Park, there is a black character that one of the villains likes to call Roots. Because oh so I mean it, so in, so you know in some respects like I'm not I'm not trying to justify it but at the same yeah. time like you know if this were made in the 70s and Obama was the president you know they would probably do something similar too so well uh, you know I, I've always told people like I'm not racist I own the first season of Sister Sister on DVD so uh, <laughs> but uh, you know anyway but uh, but but still you know as you can probably imagine. Um, you know, when uh, this sort of took on a life of its own because we did have our uh, big premiere at the uh, Rialto Theater here in Montreal. And uh, that's essentially the, the equivalent of like a Carnegie Hall. Like it's a huge, huge theater. It's, mm-hmm. it's you know, um, and the thing is like the story behind the premiere of this film was that <clears throat> there was an event called uh, Grindhouse Wednesdays and they would show like a, a feature, but then they would also show like a local short before the feature. And so I got a call from them. They were like, oh yeah, we want to show your film, Amy's in the Attic. And I was like, oh, that's great. Do you want to do it at the Rialto? That's amazing. And they were, and I was like, oh, when do you want to do it? And they were like, well, we're showing coffee for Black History Month and we thought we'd show your film before that. Oh, wow. So, you know, in wow. retrospect, I'm, so, you know, at the time, like I was upset with people for complaining, but now I'm like, no, I'm more upset with the people who organized this event because they kind of hung me up and dry. You know what I mean? Because like when they first told me that, I kind of laughed and I thought, oh, ha ha, very funny. When are you really going to show this movie? And they're like, oh no, we're showing this for Black History Month. So, yeah. yeah. So, you know, that, (laughs) and, you know, I mean, like, you know, in retrospect, would I have done something different? You know, at the time, you know, the... I'm going to say something that I think every filmmaker who's serious about their career will say. And it's not going to be something that people are going to want to hear. And it's not something I'm very proud to say myself. But when you're young and you're starting out and someone comes up to you and says, like, let's say in your case, because you're a musician, right? Like if you lived in New York and someone told you, you want to play Carnegie Hall? Who are you to say no to that? Exactly. It's it's a you once I mean? in a lifetime opportunity. Exactly. Yeah. And so I was put in a situation where it's like, and I mean, the reason why there was some controversy was because like the um, because the event was also sponsored by um, I think Head and Hands, which is like a, an outreach program here in Montreal. And mm. I think what where this all started because they apparently got like a letter from someone who said that they watched this movie at a private screening, which struck me as odd because I don't know who that, who would have saw this, but they, and they, and they basically said that they would never support that charity if they go through with the screening. So that's kind of what got this whole thing going. And, um, and you know, I mean, the screen was kind of awkward because we, they did a Q and a and like, you know, obviously, you know, everyone's question. I mean, some people had like real questions, but then of course you always had that one person who was like, Oh, are you a racist? And (laughs) as if, as if, as if even a racist would say yes. Exactly. Yeah. So, 
so anyway, I mean, like, so that's kind of something that bothered me, you know, because mm-hmm. like I was kind of put in a situation where, you know, like I, I, I certainly would never have programmed this on Black History Month, but oh god, um, no, yeah, no, I yeah. mean, and and the thing is, it's like this is this is basically this is very much more in the exploitation vein. I mean, this is, you know, I I wouldn't even consider like, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't consider. I wouldn't even consider programming something like this with, you know, coffee. I mean, I would, I would, you know, you would, you would do something like the Italian exploitation films that you're clearly paying homage to. And, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, that is, that's a completely untenable situation, but yeah, I mean, I, I will say it's far going back to what you were talking about as far as, um, ideology versus art i mean i will say i mean i i do think and i do think that if you're putting if you're putting ideology front and center i mean unless you're unless the unless your film craft is just immaculate and you're 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 landing all the emotional beats and all that right you're not going to make a good, great film because yeah. it, because of the fact that it's too obvious. And I mean, exactly. I, I think that's, that's where that, that is where focusing now. I mean, grand you, you have people like Spike Lee who very much can put ideology ahead of, but they also are brilliant craftsmen and to where it's like when Spike Lee combines his craft and is, ideology it's a blunt weapon and it's effective as a blunt weapon because that's the that's that's the filmmaker they defined himself to be over the year you know i was thinking about this the other day it's kind of funny how we sometimes get what we want because i seem to remember a time a long time ago uh like growing up in the 90s kind of lamenting over the fact that if you wanted to watch a movie about something about an idea like you would have to watch an Oliver Stone or a Michael Moore movie. And now it seems like it's the opposite where almost every movie is like an Oliver Stone or a Michael Moore film. And like the idea of telling stories seems to be a bit of a lost art. I mean, in the case of Spike Lee, I really admire him. And I, and I think one of the reasons why I do is because his films are very entertaining. Yeah. Like he does find a way to sort of, like, I mean, there's no doubt that, you know, his movies are about ideas. And I'm not opposed to films that are about ideas. I mean, like, you know, my films have ideas in them, too. But yeah. I, I'm just saying that I think it's the approach you go by. Like, I still think that at the end of the day, most people who watch, like in my case, genre films aren't necessarily going there to be preached to. Oh, no, so absolutely. I feel like, a- absolutely. So I feel like, and so in some respects, that's sort of why I moved away from pure genre, just because I felt like... I was having to do too many interviews. I mean, I love doing this interview, but like, I mean, like I was having to explain to too many people like, no, 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 this is what it's all about. And you can't always do that. So, you know, um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, um, so yeah, I was just thinking, yeah, it was funny because like now it's kind of like the opposite and it's now I'm finding myself longing for the days when there was maybe a bit more of a balance, Mm -hmm. but, um, but yeah, anyway, (laughs) Well, one thing, one thing that I do find interesting in uh, in Amy's in the act. I mean, obviously, it's in the title, but you know, your your other three films, uh, there's 
you know, and we, we talked about with the manipulator and the subservient. I mean, you know, one of the things I kind of got the impression of is that, you know, the, the male is very much in a uh, subservient position in terms of, in terms of the hierarchy, in terms of uh, male-female dynamics. And then in Vampiros Lesbos, it's kind of the same thing. And then obviously in Arata's side, we see what happened. We we see Yan uh, humiliated by his ex-lover, by Kendra, in the film. And then, but in Amy's in the Attic, it's a female who is on the that end of the humiliation. Was it basically just in terms of the inspiration was it just in the inspiration of um, that uh, paying homage to that particular genre that led to that switch, or was there uh, something else that you were thinking about? Well, <clears throat> I didn't get a chance to mention this because uh, it just occurred to me now. But you know, the thing is, um, you know, when I was exploring, because I've always been really interested in uh, gender studies and sexual appropriation, and um, you know, when I was making, I guess you could even see this a bit with Vampiro's Lesbos, but you really saw it when she was asking for it, that, you know, whether or not you're into S&M, the idea of a woman asserting herself, there's something sensual about that. And so I was interested in how, like, when I was filming the scenes in which uh, the two women were raping uh, the guy, I wanted to film that very sensually, very sexy, because... There is something sexy about that and something dangerous, too. Uh, and then when we flip the roles, when the man would get the revenge on the women, even though he was very much entitled to his revenge, the very idea of male-on-female violence carries a certain connotation regardless of the circumstances. So I was interested in playing around with that. Uh, I mean, as far as Amy's in the Attic goes... Um, I mean, part of it was because it was an homage. I mean, part of it is because, you know, let's face it. I mean, women in those types of roles are much more sympathetic. And the idea here was to feel sympathy for Amy. Mm -hmm. Um, it's kind of interesting because, um, uh, I, I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have known this cause I never really, uh, I think this was before we knew each other, but, um, after Amy's in the attic was done, um, uh, S.V. Bell, uh, the guy who found my masters, um, he loved my, he loved the film and he was like, you know, you, you know, you should turn this into a, a feature film one day. And then I just wrote to him casually. Well, uh, you know, um, if you, are, are you willing to put up a budget? I'll turn this into a feature. And then he wrote me back and said, how much would I want? And no one ever asked me how yeah. much money I would ever want for a movie. <laughs> and so that was sort of the next thing that came after Amy's in the Attic was basically uh, the feature version of the film that answered a lot of the questions that were left hanging after the short. Uh, I collaborated on that for about three months with a writer here in Montreal, Anthony Calabresi. And, uh, you know, we watched the short uh, uh, countless times uh, trying to find all those unanswered questions, like, you know, all these leads that could eventually be explored in a feature. And what we came up with was a 165-page script. <laughs> oh, my uh, word. <laughs> and uh, basically the film was structured kind of like The Godfather Part Two, where basically, you know, um, there were two stories going on. There was the after 
math of the party, which was sort of sh uh, done in the style of a, a jalo, a whodunit. There was basically like all the people who were at the party that night were getting killed one by one. Mm -hmm. And part of the fun was trying to figure out who the killer was. Uh, the other part of the story took place before the party where we got to learn who Amy was. And the story that we came up with, Amy, is that uh, Amy uh, was a nurse working in a cancer ward. And one day uh, she's going in to check in on one of her patients and the patient uh, starts losing his mind when he sees her. Uh, and the reason he does that is because he and he tells her that uh, she looks so much like her mom. And, uh, you know, she never knew her mom. So she kind of, she goes home and she talks to her dad about this. And her father essentially gives her the story that, um, you know, he met her mother at this club called Cleopatra's. And uh, he, uh, and then like, you know, he, 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 um, he, uh, he developed a relationship with uh, his mother who, uh, with her mother who was like a stripper who danced there. And then one night uh, he came in and he found a baby that was left in his care. And he decided to name her Amy and uh, he, you know, raised her as his own. And so when she learns the truth about her uh, background, uh, she goes to this club, the Cleopatra's, to try and find mm -hmm. out more information about her mom. And she meets a guy named uh, Alucard. And, uh, you know, one thing leads to another and they sleep with each other. Uh, but then the next morning, uh, Amy tells Alucard her story uh, about uh, the mother who used to be a dancer here and the baby. And then basically, uh, I mean, Amy never finds this out, but we sort of learned that Alucard was Amy's father, like her real father, her biological father. And uh, so essentially, uh, the, the reason why he... So this, the reason why he held this party was basically to sort of get revenge on the daughter for sort of, you know, misleading him. Oh, wow. So that was wow. the feature. And, <laughs> yeah. like, uh, and, and, and there's and a the, little bit of old boy in there, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there, there's obviously a little yeah. bit of old boy in there, too. Um, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and then, of course, like, I mean, we had the... Um, the scene, like in the short film, although it was, it was shaped a little differently. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, basically, like, you had these two stories kind of coming, like, converging on this scene of the, the night of the party. And so, yeah, I mean, I was really proud of that script. Like, uh, we had a, uh, a chalkboard. We had the whole story blocked out and everything. There was, like, like dozens and dozens of characters. There were extras and everything. And, uh, you know, for the longest time, like... Uh, so, yeah, so, I mean, eventually, like, we submitted the script to S.B. Bell, and he uh, he liked it. I mean, he obviously had some concerns. Um, and then, you know, for the longest time, and, and I'll admit this, you know, for the longest time, I always thought that, you know, because the official reason why that project fell through was because uh, the financing, uh, there was an issue with financing. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was the official story. I always maintained that the real reason the film didn't work out was because he read the script, like he probably saw my film. He was thinking, well, maybe they'll just like, you know, need a few thousand to add to this. Yeah. But he saw, but then he saw like there was this new script <laughs> with, uh, with all these people. But uh, having, having reconnected with S.B. Bell recently, you know, with my masters, uh, I mean, he told me some behind the scenes stuff that I won't repeat here, but let's just say that I was right about the financial thing being the real reason. <laughs> yeah. Um. Because, yeah. So, well, and um, plus, I mean, you know, a two and a half hour Italian exploitation homage that's structured after, 
akin to Godfather too. I mean, who 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 wouldn't want to watch that? I mean, you know. It's, well, actually, it's... The, you know, the thing is, in all fairness, like this feature wasn't really going to have like all those effects and right. stuff. Like this right. was actually. It was. It was. We we basically took a grindhouse film and kind of turned it into a real movie, yeah, <laughs> like a drama. But uh, and oh, and you know one thing too. Uh, we actually worked the title into the uh, into a line of dialogue. Oh wow! <laughs> so you know, <laughs> so it was, I think like there's a scene where well, I, I don't know. Like, this is the end. I don't know. Who knows? Maybe one day this will turn into a feature. Maybe someone will listen to this and enticed to want to finance it but uh. that, that i mean that would be fascinating to see that that story that you just outlined in uh on on screen it would be fascinating um no i mean it you know it's like this one i i think part of it is because of the fact that it's like it's i i think because so much of it is in the exploitation vein and so much of it is more in that genre of filmmaking the an emotional connection to the characters is harder to make i think with such a simple storyline with such a simple ideas and storyline so I, I think that's the reason why it's like of these three it's probably not as much my favorite and it's like yeah i mean there there's some stuff here that's pretty shocking to be sure but at the same time, it's like, you know, I I, I like, I, I think especially because of the fact that now that I've seen the Franco's film, I would, I, I don't know that I would have had as much appreciation for Vampiros Lesbos if I had not seen Franco's film first and we had not discussed that one first. And I think, you know, even though you, you're, you know, you you see it, and you see maybe maybe I should pull back a little bit more on the David Lynch clear David Lynch influence. I actually think that I actually like le- the the leaning into the Lynchian aspects of this of the manipulator and the subservient. I think is a big is as much of a reason why that movie lands emotionally as it does. And it's and I you know it's like I I do actually I enjoy Amy's in the act for what it is you know it's like but at the same time it's like of your of your films it's not necessarily one that I'm not sure that I would go back to revisit anytime soon. That's a fair enough <laughs> assessment. That's fine. I mean, in all yeah. fair, I mean it, it's. It's it's interesting though because uh, like I said I I did watch all four of these and like um, there <laughs> it's 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 quite a jump from uh, from Amy's in the attic to uh, to eroticide yeah. Um, yeah but you know in all fairness like um, you know like if and when I make more movies I feel like they would probably be more in the vein of an eroticide than they would yeah. in the early than the earlier stuff I kind of feel like s- similar to the reason why. I don't know if I would ever make another, nothing against Mario at all, but I mean, like, I don't know if I would make another still image film. Is that I sort of, like, I'm a big fan of uh, British comedy, like the BBC and everything. And one thing I really admire that is their ability to go out on top, like to not, you know, like yeah. milk something. Like they'll end, they'll, they'll, you know, they'll, they'll kill uh, the characters of a popular series, like in the, at the end of the first series of, first season so like i mean so they clearly you know they they want to you know keep it 
keep the quality there. So in my case, I honestly feel like if like um, I, I don't necessarily believe in going backwards. Like yeah. I, I like to yeah. learn from, you know, the, the past and apply it to the future. But I do think that, you know, there is some there is something to be said about people who just you know, focus on the past and their uh, Well, yeah, their and, and, and that's the thing. I mean, you know, I'm much more interested in the filmmaker that is moving forward and shows an evolution in their filmmaking style than somebody who just is kind of stuck in the past. And it's like, I, I think that's, you know, it's like, it's, look, it's admirable that at 91 years of old, Clint Eastwood is making, continuing to make movies. That being said, the last few Clint Eastwood movies I've seen are not are like not even remotely as good as his best work. And it's like you you feel like to a certain extent he's he's stilted any growth he's made as a filmmaker and is just kind of running in the same place because of the fact that that's what he's comfortable with. And then you look at somebody like Spielberg and you look at somebody like Scorsese whom even after they've made all-time classics are still still have find a way still find ways to can to push themselves into different directions into bolder directions in terms of storytelling in terms of visual style even in something as conventional as like The Departed because you know that they're going to have something they're going to try to when they get a chance to do something like silence or Tintin in the case of Spielberg, they're going to be challenging themselves as much as the audience that grew up with their films. Yeah. And I've always admired uh, filmmakers who are able to bounce from genre to genre while still maintaining that signature style. Um, Cause yeah, you're right. Because it does become very easy for filmmakers to kind of find a style and stick to it. Like if I wanted to, I could, I could still have been making those still images films to this day. I mean, they were, I don't want to say easy, but I mean, compared to let's say a, a motion picture, they were relatively quicker to make than yeah. those. But then, I mean, you know, you would just be going back to the well every time. And sometimes it's good to go back to the well, like when Kevin Smith did clerks too, but uh, uh, sometimes otherwise, Sometimes it's good to move on. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so when, you know, looking at eroticide, I mean, we won't, necess we won't spend too much time with it because of the fact that we spent plenty of time with it in our initial interview. Looking, looking at eroticide in the perspective of the, the pre your pre these previous three films, what is one of the things that, is there anything that surprises you about it in that context? Or is there something that really stands out to you in, in the perspective of like looking back at your earlier work and then seeing this movie? And uh, if, if, if so, what is it? Well, uh, I mean, <clears throat> certainly uh, I think the one thing that really jumped out at me was um, how I could sort of track the uh, development, not only I'm a, uh, as a filmmaker, but as a human being. Uh, like I mentioned before, like uh, had I made The Manipulator and The Subservient in 2013, I have a feeling it would resemble eroticide more than, let's say, my other films. So in that respect, I can certainly see a growth. 
it's interesting because when you go from it's almost like a it's almost like a uh, an art house sandwich like you've got the manipulator and eroticide which are kind of similar in theme and certainly in tr- in terms of uh being dramas and then you've got like vampiros and amy's in the attic which are these sort of exploitation uh shock films uh that are very much different in tone from eroticide <laughs> Um, but no, honestly, what I see is I see myself slowly becoming me, the person that I am today when I watch mm-hmm. these films. Uh, it also kind of helps that I'm in them so I could like physically see how I've grown. I mean, like when I, I, I must say when I was looking at, uh, pictures of me in those booty shorts and vampiros, lesbos, I found myself longing for the dates, but I had that body. Uh, cause I've, I've, I've put on a few pounds since then. <laughs> um, but, um, uh, um, no, I mean, like, but obviously, like, out of, I mean, I'm, I'm proud of all of my films, but if I, if, if I had to just show one, I would show a rock side, obviously. Mm. I mean, that's, that's the film that, I mean, from a behind the scenes perspective, that was my first real film in the sense that I had a crew of 20 people, everyone doing individual tasks. So I wasn't like wearing all the hats that I did in my other films. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, from an acting standpoint, I got to work with three of the best actors I've ever collaborated with. We did rehearsals. Uh, which is something you don't always get to do on indie films. We got mm-hmm. to rehearse uh, on location, which influenced the way we shot the film. Like, for example, that's, that long uh, dolly shot uh, or that tracking shot from the elevator when it goes down the hallway, that was something we came up with on the spot because we had all this time to rehearse. Uh, I mean, I would have never thought of that uh, alone in my office trying to come up with a shot list. I mean, this is just something we we did because, I mean, so many things worked about that movie. And then, of course, you know, the success that it kind of went on to have afterwards kind of speaks for itself. I mean, it played in 25 countries. And I always say that, but no one presses me on that. So maybe I should just press myself. Uh, When I say it played in 25 countries, what I mean is that... Uh, I had a, I, well, I guess I still have an agent, but I have an agent named, uh, he's in uh, Germany named, oh, wait, what's his name? He works at Trom Kino. Oh, Andy Gross, Andy Gross. So he's a film programmer at uh, uh, Film Kino in, uh, Trom Kino, I mean, in uh, Kiel, Germany. And so uh, every year he has like a fetish film festival. And uh, obviously he's shown my films in the past. Uh, but then with Eroticide, what he did is that he took my film and two other shorts, and he basically booked uh, four-wall screenings in movie theaters around the world. Hmm. And so my film played in 25 countries in different movie theaters. And what uh, he would do, because he would go there and promote the films and talk, and he would get feedback from people. So I have feedback you know, from all types of people all over the world in different languages, which doesn't really help me, obviously, but the English <laughs> ones do. Uh, and um, and so, yeah, so no, it's, I mean, being able to see, yeah, like, I mean, so many people have come out and told me stories about their own toxic relationships and, like, how eroticide, in some cases, encouraged them to get out of relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, you have people who, Again, you know, like uh, with the fetish community, I feel like, again, with the fetish, and I say this from experience because I'm in there. So, um, you know, I feel like with the fetish community and with a lot of communities like this, you have like two, I would say two thirds of the people just want to be accepted or at the very least tolerated. Mm -hmm. And then you've got that militant faction who wants to have their rights, want to fight to have their their rights, uh, and they want to have their cake and eat it too. And the fact of the matter is there's a lot of really bad stuff 
that goes on in the fetish community. Uh, I have a story about uh, 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 there's a social media site that they have called FetLife, uh, which is their Facebook. And uh, I'll never forget, like I was on there and my wife was on there and uh, someone uh, sent my wife a message threatening to rape her. And she took a screenshot of that and sent that to the admins who run FetLife and they basically told her to F off. So there's a lot of very bad stuff that goes on. I mean, uh, you know, the whole thing, I mean, one of the things that really strikes me about uh, eroticide is, you know, um, and it, it really put a lot of things into perspective because I don't know if I ever really told the story about eroticide, you know, I mean, officially I've always told people that this wasn't really based on any one person, but rather uh, the type of person I was drawn to at the time. Um, but you know what? That's actually not true. It is based on <laughs> a, a particular person. Um, she's a filmmaker here in Montreal, and uh, um, it's a really long story. Uh, um, essentially, you know, we initially met. I was giving a, a lecture for a film class that she was a part of, <clears throat> and after the lecture, she came up to me and uh, you know said, "If you ever want someone to collaborate with you, give me a call." And then a couple of years passed, uh, this was in 2008, and uh, I was part of a play at uh, the Fantasia Film Festival. It was called uh, Infection. Uh, basically, it was a story about a group of actors trying to put on a show, but someone gets bitten by a zombie, and that was me, and all kinds of havoc ensues. But anyway, so uh, I was cast in that, and uh, so was she. And, uh, you know, we kind of got to talking and, um, you know, eventually uh, we went out uh, one time and uh, we really hit it off. And uh, then we sort of developed uh, this, uh, which, you know, in retrospect, uh, was a very toxic relationship. And, um, you know, looking back on it now, especially with what I understand about at least how my brain works, you know, in many respects, I really didn't know what I was consenting to at all. And that's the thing about, you know, particularly humiliation is that unlike flogging, where you can physically see when you've gone too far, you don't know when you've gone too far with someone when it comes to these games. Uh, I certainly didn't know how far uh, I was going. And mm -hmm. um, so uh, this went on for uh, a good, I would say a good two years or so. Uh, towards the end, we kind of uh, drifted apart. Uh, I mean, I started seeing some other folks, and then eventually I met my wife, and the rest is history. Uh, but interestingly enough, uh, last year something happened that I never thought would ever happen. Um, so uh, this is a bit of a, another tangent, but uh, I, I, I actually have a few stalkers, but there was one stalker in particular who uh, started... Uh, posting everywhere that I would post saying that uh, I had uh, killed myself. Uh, and among the many people he reached out to, or she, or whoever this person was, uh, was in fact uh, the uh, person who uh, eroticide was based on. And so imagine uh, that awkward conversation when I had to send her an email and ask her, hey, do you think you could delete this comment? Uh, but then something happened, and um, when... Um, when she wrote me back, which was a surprise because I didn't think she'd even write me back, um, you know, she, you know, she said, "Oh, that's terrible," and I'll take it down. And then one thing she said that I never anticipated was uh, she apologized uh, for everything that went on back then, and um, that changed things for me 
Um, because up until that point, um, you know, it's easy to sort of hate or resent or it's easy to forget about someone when you dehumanize them, when you, you know, you, you, you don't see them as a person anymore. You know, like I was so blinded by everything that happened that, you know, I didn't necessarily see some of the good that was there because mm -hmm. while our relationship unquestionably had that toxic element, there were a lot of positive things too. And um, so when she apologized, that sort of humanized her in my eyes. And that made me see things uh, a little differently than I did, than I had when I had made eroticide. Um, and it's funny because I actually had an idea uh, for a film, uh, which I mistakenly pitched to her, uh, and you'll see why this was a mistake. Uh, I had an idea to do uh, a sequel to Eroticide set 10 years later, but in the real world, where basically uh, I would be playing myself and she'd be playing uh, her. And uh, basically we would learn that we, we were the, the sources for the characters, Yan and Kendra. And basically the film was gonna be us having a conversation about our past and trying to find some closure. The whole point was about closure. Mm -hmm. um, and so obviously, uh, I don't know, maybe I was just, you know, nostalgia I find is one of the most insidious things in the world, especially <laughs> when you're lonely. Uh, because, you know, at the time I thought, well, you know, I'll pitch this to her and who knows, we'll see what happens. Uh, but, uh, you know, she kind of, I think she realized that wasn't going to be a good idea. So that project kind of fell through. But uh, we kind of traded emails back and forth, you know, talking a bit about the past. And, um, you know, I think um, I, uh, at one point, I think I was just so overcome with emotion because so many things were kind of coming back to me that I pretty much told her that, you know, the time that I spent with her was kind of like a golden age in the sense that, you know, I was at the top of my game making films. Um, you know, um, I was in a relationship with someone who I saw as a, a muse, someone who inspired me. And in many respects, um, you know, that level that in many respects, I don't think I, I've always found myself kind of chasing that time in my period, that period of time in my life. You know, even though, like, I've gone on to do, you know, I guess bigger and better things or certainly uh, uh, bigger things, um, if I'm really going to be honest with myself, I mean, that was a time in my life that was very special. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I told her that, you know, I'm not sure why I told her that, but I just felt like I needed to get that off my chest. And uh, sure enough, like, she wrote back and uh, I could tell that she was quite moved. Um, and then we agreed to meet up with each other and we did that. And that lasted about a good hour and a half uh, before <laughs> I, uh, ended up having a panic attack and had to leave. Um, just because, well, I'm not going to go to all the personal stuff, but anyways, just, you know, um, but, um, so anyway, I mean, I guess the reason why I brought that up was because, um, with the manipulator and the subservient, I eventually uh, met up with the, the person it was based on, and we watched the film together. Um, unfortunately, with eroticide, uh, we didn't really get a chance to do that. Uh, although I, I do know that she watched the film. Um, I'm not sure what her opinion of it was, although I can't imagine that she liked it. Mm -hmm. But um, at any rate, um, you know, we, I don't know, like we tried to uh, organize a second meeting just to kind of 
tie things up, but unfortunately, um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Um, maybe I uh, woefully misread her intentions, but at any rate, um, this is a sort of little postscript to eroticide because I did eventually, in some respects, eroticide almost kind of came true. <laughs> <laughs> um, so one of the things that you mentioned uh, earlier on in this uh, interview discussion, uh, it's a combination of the two, I think, uh, is that you have, uh, you are prepping and you've worked on uh, writing a, uh, another film. And I was wondering if you would uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I do have a little story <laughs> before it though. Uh, if you don't, if you'll indulge me, um, I only told one person this and um, I feel like I'm confident enough to talk about this. Um, so uh, this year has been really, really tough on me for a lot of reasons. Um, Health-wise, uh, I've, well, let's just say I've seen more sunsets than I'm going to see. Um, and then, you know, personally, there's, um, there's some, there are a few decisions that I'm going to have to make that are pretty painful, and I'll have to cross that bridge once we get there. But um, this was a really intense year, and um, for some reason... Like, I stopped taking my medication, which really didn't help at all because that just exasperated my symptoms. Mm -hmm. And I fell into probably the darkest depression, um, certainly since the time that I was let go at the Carlton. Um, and it was, and the other thing too was that, you know, all year, whether it was, you know, whether, whether I was like meditating or just in dreams, this date would keep showing up in my head, 9-22, 9 And I was, I couldn't really make heads or tails uh, about, about that. Um, but I did know one thing uh, that I, that I, that I was basically going to take my life. And I figured, well, 922 is as good a day as any to do that. Uh, I live in Montreal, and uh, where where I'm located, there's a big overpass um, overlooking a, a big highway, and there's a lot of uh, chain fence material that essentially prevents people from well doing what I'm about to describe to you. Um, and what I would do like every day or whenever I would pass by that, like I would have like these sort of pliers that I would keep on myself. And uh, whenever I would pass by that overpass, I would cut a tiny piece of the chain link fence. And I would do that every time I would pass by that fence. And that was supposed to symbolize the fact that, you know, on 922, I was going to essentially take the plunge and take my life. Then something happened um, on uh, 914. Uh, the man that I would consider a personal hero and certainly one of the greatest, if not the greatest, stand up comedians of all time, Norm MacDonald, passed away. And uh, he was a huge inspiration for me because that's another thing that I didn't mention that one of my dreams was also to become a stand up comedian. Um, and so naturally, and I find like he and I have 
few parallels in our careers. I mean, obviously, I never worked on Saturday Night Live, but I had my little hot period, and then, you know, when I disappeared. Uh, and so he passed away, and, you know, he left a huge body of work. And the great thing about some of his material is how cinematic it is. Like, when he's telling this joke, you can picture it in your head. And there's one joke that he has told, and I... I don't want to say it because that's going to give away the film. Um, but I will say that um, there's a joke that he's told uh, on his podcast uh, about a man who visits an isolated house uh, where there's only two women who live there. And that's all I could really say because so much of it is based on the punchline. Um, but uh, essentially what I'm going to do is uh, take one of those jokes and adapt it. And, um, you know, it's not going to be a, a long film. But it is going to be a way for me to get my feet wet again and work with new people. And then based on how that goes, perhaps that might lead into bigger and more ambitious projects. But for the time being, that is going to be the plan. My plan is to adapt one of Norm MacDonald's jokes. Um, it's going to be my first adaptation. So um, it was very interesting adapting that into script form. Um, it's funny because some people were reading the script and they pointed out a couple of plot holes, but when I told them that this is based on a joke, I'm sure even Norm MacDonald, bless his heart, wasn't thinking of all the, <laughs> whether the story made sense. So like in an effort to stay true to the material, like everything, every, everything is going to be there, uh, plot holes and all. Mm -hmm. And, um, so if all goes according to plan, hopefully we'll shoot this in the fall and, um, I don't know, maybe it'll be ready by the end of the year. We'll see. But uh, I, I'm very happy um, that I have, well, first of all, I'm happy that I'm still alive uh, and I, that I have a renewed purpose. Um, but um, I'm also happy that, uh, I'm also happy to be back making films again because, you know, it's, this is going to sound sad, but I've, said, I've told so many sad stories. <laughs> but, you know, for the long, if you were to ask me what I was more proud of, my work as a filmmaker or that of a film programmer, until recently, I might have told you my work as a film programmer. And the reason for that being because, you know, by going up and doing introductions and in some cases doing like little acting sketches, this was kind of like theater. And I always really enjoyed theater because the uh, response was immediate and you could tell on the, on the, you could tell like when people are into you and or not. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and, and, you know, and I was also just proud of all the connections I had made and like, you know, friends who would come to the event and are starting to do their own events now. But uh, I never told this story, but like at one point I had deleted my Facebook. This was like after Carlton and then, like, about maybe a few months later, I created a new account and uh, got back online. And, you know, I never deluded myself for a second that there would be, you know, pages and groups dedicated to the memory of the Carlton Midnight Society. But I certainly thought that there might be one or two people who might have wondered, you know, what happened to the Midnight Society. Uh, so imagine my shock when there was nothing whatsoever online about what happened to that crazy bearded guy at the Carlton who did those Midnight Society events. And that kind of broke my heart, but it also humbled me 
uh, quite a bit. I, maybe I needed that because now, of course, I mean, that doesn't take into consideration anyone who might have called the cinema. But let's be honest, I'm never going back to the Carlton. So, like, I mean, the only way I could know what's going on is what people are posting. Yeah. Um, but I can't really say that about my films. I mean, you know, granted, uh, every once in a while, I'll get an email from someone saying that they, you know, played a devil, played a solo on the devil's clarinet while watching my movie. And, you know, thanks for that. <laughs> but, uh, but then, of course, I would also get people who have really nice things to say, you know, uh, things about how, oh, your films have shaped my sexuality. Uh, I'm never, I'm never entirely sure how to respond to that, but yeah. thank you. <laughs> I was just like, uh, thank you. But then also, you know, I've gotten nice comments about the films themselves, and of course, mm. you know, your comments today. So, if, if I'm going to be honest, like I think I'm far, far more proud of my work as a filmmaker because I know that people know my films and mm. care about them, and um, yeah. And I, I will simply say, and again, thank you very much for your honesty. I know, like, like I said earlier, I know that I know uh, that type of thing is very difficult to talk about, especially in a public saying, even though it's initially recorded, is just conversation between you and I, and uh, it's uh, it's it's tough to talk about. And um, I, I will say that. I I I think you have a lot to be proud of when it comes to your films, and I'm I'm I've known Arasad. I mean, Arasad's been one of my favorite discoveries of filmmakers sending me their work uh, since I first saw it, and that still holds true. And um, you know, now that I've seen now that I've seen your other work, I mean, it definitely it it definitely shows it, it shows me the storyteller that you were right out of the gate and it shows me the growth as a filmmaker as well as an individual uh over the years and I think that's one of the things that is I I think that's one of the most important things that art can do. I mean especially you know I mean I, I look at my you know, I'm certainly somebody that if you listen to my early pieces, you can tell they're rough. You can tell they're somebody just trying to come up with their voice and figure out what their voice is. And then as the years go on, as the ideas get more and more dense and as the story, as the ideas get more and more complicated, uh, you can definitely tell that there's a voice is being established. And it's like, I certainly, I mean, there are some pieces of mine that I made early on that I have have a tremendous amount of respect for. There are also some that I'm like, oh yeah, that's I would never do something like that now. And um, you know, but it's all part of the continuum. It's all part of the journey. Um, and I think it also shows the you know, and I look at those pieces, you know, even though I think even though I feel like my work as a critic and a podcaster and a discusser of film is ultimately my personal legacy, it's like, I, you know, the idea of somebody listening to my music and going, oh, I really like that piece. And it's like, I really enjoyed those ideas you were exploring. It's like, that's, that, that's something that is, it's meaningful when you get that type of praise and uh, and w when you get those type of words. And um, 
I'm I'm very grateful that we were able to have this discussion. Oh, as am I. Uh, thank you very much for for having me on the show and thinking me still culturally relevant. <laughs> and uh, yeah, uh, once again, uh, where can people uh, find your films? <clears throat> uh, well, they can find them on my uh, YouTube channel. So that's uh, youtube.com slash Matthew Saliba. And I'm pretty active on there, so feel free to send me a message. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, in addition to the films, uh, there's other stuff that I've done at the Carlton, too. But uh, but go for the films. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, Matthew, thank you very much for uh, joining me tonight. Thank you, Brian. I'd like to thank Matthew for uh, joining me on the podcast today. Um, I'm really grateful to be able to talk to him about his work and uh it's it's really diverse and worthwhile movies to listen to uh watch and i hope you uh take a chance to watch his work on youtube um that's gonna be it for this episode of the sonic cinema podcast got a lot of great things coming up in the uh end of the year and uh i hope you are ready for that at www.sonic-cinema.com thank you very much Thank you.